Well, if you're a guest with us, my name's John. I'm a pastor here at, at the church, and you're catching us in the midst of a series uh, in the fall where we're just going straight through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we've been chipping away at that kind of a chunk at a time, and, and uh, today we're on this chunk that spans from chapter 2, verse 17, till uh, chapter 3, verse 8. So the, the ser- series is called Unashamed of the Gospel, and uh, that's really be- built on the central theme of the letter that Paul kind of unpacks in the first chapter. He, just very quickly where we've been, he introduces himself and uh, kind of even in the way he introduces himself to the Roman church, he kind of introduces himself in a countercultural way and then he, he states the central theme of this whole letter, which is this, it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So we read that and our our first thought is the righteousness of God has been revealed and and we think, oh yeah, we come to know that God is righteous and and doesn't need anything to be fixed because God is, is perfect. That is true, but what Paul means by this phrase is that a kind of righteousness that can become ours through faith in Christ has been revealed. And so what Paul's really talking about is the the very central theme of the gospel that God in this world is about making people perfectly unbroken again uh, by, by grace through faith in Jesus. God wants to make us as if we were never broken, never needed fixing, never needed to be repaired or helped uh, in any way by God. That, that's the righteousness of Christ that's given us in the gospel. So th- that's the main thing. And then Paul really spends the, the rest of the letter unpacking that in, in more detail. So he takes a pretty sharp turn after stating that central theme and uh, just describes really where the world is at without God. You know, wh- where we're left if left to our own devices. And he addresses groups of people, big segments of people. And, and the spirit is, you know, to understand how good the good news is, you got to understand how bad the bad news is. And he, he talks about evil people and he uses the pronoun they and comes to this conclusion that all of us kind of know the difference between right and wrong because of our conscience and, and what God has put in our hearts already. So he says they, the evil people, know what's right and wrong. They choose to do wrong and they approve of other people who are doing wrong. You know, and the whole religious and self-righteous world says, oh my goodness, how dare they? But then Paul turns from using the pronoun they to using the pronoun you. And he addresses people who think of themselves as good, kind of self-righteous. This is what we hit last week. And he's like, there's a whole, there's a whole other category of people because we all know right and wrong and we all know that we do wrong. And there are some people that approve of others who do wrong. And then there are some people who do the exact same thing but condemn the same behavior in other people, this self-righteousness. And Paul says that adds a whole layer of hypocrisy to the thing that's even worse, right? So I don't know about you, but I, I keep experiencing Paul's little challenges as hitting closer and closer to home. The one today is pointed directly at you and me because Paul addressed the evil people and kind of self-righteous people And here he addresses religious people. And more than just religious people, God's people, the people who have received special revelation from God in addition to what can be known about God generally. 
right? So Paul's addressing the Jewish folks of his day, but I take it to mean by extension that this is good for us too because we have received specific revelation. So basically, Paul's going after the fog of religion, this, this false sense of assurance that we religious people can feel because we're religious. And in a way, he's trying to say, look, this is the most insidious form of self-deception. One, one uh, most impervious to rational argument that when a person becomes overly familiar with religious things, particularly Christian things, it can, it can kind of create around you a hardened shell to the actual truths that Jesus wants us to receive and live. So, if you thought the other two hit close to home, <laughs> buckle your seatbelts again and listen to this scripture. The word of the Lord from Romans chapter two. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, but from God. What advantage then? is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. 
But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Paul. I was a business major in college, and there is a classic business book titled Sacred Cows Make the Best Burgers. <laughs> Anybody ever heard of that book? <laughs> Sacred cows make the best burgers. If, if you're new to the idea of a sacred cow, it's an, an idea, custom, institution held to be above criticism. You know, this thing you're kind of not supposed to touch. And, uh, and there's a reference to uh, the Hindu faith that regards a cow as a sacred creature, a sacred animal. Um, and the, the sub, subtitle of this business book is uh, Developing Change-Driving People and Organizations. So it's getting at this idea that Sometimes we have these sacred cows and you're not allowed to even talk about them or, or touch it. Or, you know, and, and if you've been in groups, organizations, and uh, kind of had these conversations, uh, you, you know, somebody brings up something um, that everyone else knows you're not supposed to talk about. And um, if you're the one doing it, people kind of look at you and you're, you're getting these looks like, huh, he went there? Like, oh my, oh my goodness, she can't say that. The gall. It's that kind of thing, right? A sacred cow. So, so anyway, what, make, what makes the title funny, uh, in, in a rather sacrilegious way, at least for Hindu people, uh, is that we're, we're not only going to address the sacred cow, we're going to grind it up, make burgers, and eat it for lunch. Right? With the idea being that the extreme resiliency of that, that topic requires extreme measures to address it. And, and the basic coaching is, hey, everybody makes better decisions, everything moves forward better if we can do the unfathomable by questioning the validity of long-held assumptions that at the end of the day might not only be not helping us, but actually hurting us, like hold, hindering us, holding everything back. I mean, this, this section in Romans is the equivalent of Paul taking the two biggest sacred cows of Judaism, throwing them in the meat grinder, and pressing the green start button. It, it is that extreme. It would have been heard with that kind of extremity to a, to a Jewish person. Uh, you, you might have heard of the invitation challenge uh, kind of balance. I think I've talked about this before in a sermon. If, if this is new to you, one way of looking at how Jesus engaged people is with the ideas of invitation and challenge. And Jesus was a master of approaching people with relational invitation, meaning he invited them in, invited people to come toward him, very warm and, and inviting. And he was also a master of 
not just making a comfortable, cozy culture that's all about invitation, but also living by the value that he loves us too much to allow us to remain as we are. Therefore, real love includes challenge. So he'd invite in and he would challenge us, right? Balancing invitation and challenge. Paul does that too, but this particular passage is all challenge. 100% challenge. And it starts with, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you claim to be someone who's received specific revelation, and then he, he dives in and and start saying things that every Jewish person would kind of nod their head and agree with. Look at the text again. He uses eight verbs. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, there's one. If you rely on the law, there's two. Boast in God, there's three. If you know his will, there's four. If you approve of what is superior, there's five. Because you are instructed by the law, six. If you are convinced that you're a guide, seven, for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. There's eight. Eight verbs. And every Jewish person would have been nodding their head saying, yep, that's, that's us. There's nothing new here because every Jewish person in Paul's day would have understood that they had been blessed to be a blessing language that comes right out of the covenantal theology in Genesis, that that God blessed people so that they would be a blessing to the world. This is the fundamental concept of God's purpose for the Jewish people in the world and would have been right in their hearts. God chose them to bless them for the purpose of, of blessing the world. Being blessed, they were to bless others. Being instructed, they were to instruct others. Being taught, They were to teach others. There was this fundamental understanding of a dual relationship. We've received, therefore we are called to give. That that was basic to their faith, right? Every Jewish person understood they had received much from God and that God's purpose for them was to bless the world with what they had received so others might know God. So again, every Jewish person nodding their heads, yep, we're with you, Paul, that's all good. But then Paul turns from verbs to questions, He asks five questions and they could not have been more biting because they are equivalent to an accusation that the Jewish people have failed utterly at their basic calling in the world to bless other people. Basically, Paul's saying, look, you're not only failing to advance the mission of God, you're actually hurting the cause of God in the world. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch! I mean, if we're for blessed to be a blessing to the world, but our presence and behavior in the world is causing non-believing people to think and speak poorly of God, there is a big problem. Because that's the mandate for God's people, is to reach the world 
with the good news of God. This has always been the mandate for God's people. I hope we know this. This wasn't just new with Jesus. Every Jewish person knew about this mandate to reach the world. And in fact, whenever they did a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and worshiped in the temple, they saw this mandate built into the architecture of the temple, specifically in something called the Court of the Gentiles. So let me just explain this really quick. Look at two pictures. First, the whole temple mount in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Uh, if, if you haven't had occasion to be able to visit this place, it's unbelievable. The top of the Temple Mount is 150,000 square meters. 37 acres is that flat top. It's just ginormous. And if you, uh, it's not that way now if you've been there because some of it's gone, right? Back in Jesus' day, it was 37 acres. And then if you, if you zoom in, next picture here, that purple kind of long oval thing that I drew is the court of the Gentiles. And you can see that the whole temple mount is that big flat huge football field thing. And then there's another little interior wall that loops around there. And the gate into that space I circled with that blue little circle. Everybody tracking there? So you could enter the Temple Mount through big gates and then you could enter into, past that interior wall, those were the courts of the temple. So you would go from Temple Mount into the courts. So you can, you can think biblically here, uh, Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So when a Jewish person read that, they would understand this was physically the way that we approached God to worship. Because God's presence was in that big tall building on the temple. The ark was packed in there in the Holy of Holies. That's where God lived. And this was actually people physically approaching God to worship. Enter his gates with thanksgiving onto that temple mount and then through that gate enter his courts with praise. Now, once inside the blue gates, you were in the sanctuary space. This, this was like moving from the lobby to the sanctuary back in that day. That, that would be the equivalent. And all Gentile people had to stay in that purple circle. They could not go beyond the little aqua dashed line that I drew in there because that was the court of the women past that little aqua line, the Israelite women. And there were actually signs on that wall where the aqua is that said, no Gentile person may pass here upon punishment of death. Now back in Jesus' day, only the Romans could execute people and they executed people for this. If a Gentile person went through that next door into that next court, the Romans had an agreement with the Jewish leaders and they would execute that person for doing that. Amazing, right? This is what makes the verse in Ephesians so utterly profound because that aqua dash line, go back really quick, Raymond, please. The aqua dash line became known, that wall became known as the dividing wall of hostility because it separated Gentiles and Jewish people. And, and if a Gentile person crossed it, you were killed. So now that's what makes this verse so incredibly meaningful. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Again, Paul's writing this. Every Jewish person understands exactly what he's talking about. No more wall that if you pass it, you get killed. 
Jesus had made, has made Jewish people and Gentile people one and everybody is welcome to come to God. See, the reason the court of the Gentiles existed was to invite non-Jewish people to approach God and to worship God with Jewish people. And this was an evangelistic mandate. If you invited somebody to church back in Jesus' day, they would go to the court of the Gentiles. And that is why Jesus was so burned with the money changers doing stuff in the temple. It wasn't that they were on the temple mount. It's that they were doing all of that in the court of the Gentiles. They weren't changing money and selling stuff in the lobby. They were doing it in the sanctuary during worship. And that's why Jesus went and flipped over all the tables. What are you doing? You've missed the whole point. You're supposed to be reaching the world. And you've made this place a carnival. The place reserved for people who had crossed something of a threshold and wanted to explore faith in God was the court of the Gentiles. Mandate to reach the world. And see, imposing these questions to the Jews in, in, in Romans, he's saying, look, you are functioning in ways that are alienating the very people God has called you to reach. You're not only not helping my mission in the world, you're taking the whole thing backwards. So if we take this scripture to heart, I mean, we, we have to be willing to ask ourselves a question. In our day, where do we see non-Christian people thinking and speaking poorly of God because of the behavior of Christians? That's a hard question. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every cultural critique of Christians is appropriate. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff is excuse. Jesus said we would experience difficulty in the world. We will if we're actually holding out the gospel in graciousness. And we have to ask that question. To not ask that question is to possibly be living in the fog of religion. Right? Are, we, are we blessing the world in love or alienating the world in judgmentalism? That's what Paul's saying here. It's not just about hearing the words of Jesus, but hearing them and putting them into practice in, in every area of life. So the law, huge sacred cow for the Jewish folks, uh, law and scripture, circumcision and sacraments, right? The Jewish folks have law and circumcision. Christian folks have scripture and sacraments. So Paul then turns to the circumcision, uh, the, the sacred cow of circumcision. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. Again, we, we read this and we just read right over it. But to a Jewish person in Paul's day, this would have blown their hair completely back. What are you saying, Paul? Circumcision is the sign of the covenant and the covenant is everything. God has promised us. God has promised us. What do you mean we could become like we weren't circumcised or that we weren't part of the covenant family? I mean, this, this is the fog of religion, right? It happens so often. Religious people begin to think they're safe and secure because of their religious credentials. Not because of what Jesus has done for us. And Paul says, okay, Jewish people, okay, Christian people. That's not how God works. 
a person is not a Jew, I would say, or a Christian, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In real faith in God is a heart thing, not an external performance of religion. And, and again, this has always been true. This isn't a new with the New Testament. It, it was very much true in the Old Testament as well. By saying this, Paul is simply uh, restating what has been said in Scripture all over the place. Uh, one example, Jeremiah 7. Uh, Jeremiah was confronting the Jewish people of his day who thought that because they had the temple, they were safe and secure. And he wrote this, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And we've got the temple, so we're good. It's the fog of religion. But wow, religious people push back on this stuff. West Michigan Christians don't like to admit the hard shell that has formed around us because of over-familiarity with the gospel. I'll just say it. Religious people push back on this challenge. That's what chapter three, the first eight verses are about. Reread them again when you go home. Because really what Paul's doing in those verses, he's just simply writing down conversations he's had with people. Because he'd share this message one-on-one just as he would in a letter and Jewish people of his day would push back and they'd say, well, Paul, if, if what you're saying about the law and circumcision is true, then why should we be Jews at all? I mean, what's the benefit? Or our modern equivalent, you know, if, if the Bible and baptism don't have any saving significance, I mean, why do this Christian thing at all? What's the point? And, and Paul takes the question seriously and says, look, there's a huge advantage in, in this, this is the specific revelation of God. You've been entrusted with the very words of God. You've received something special and unique so that you may know God and help others know God and choose to worship him willingly. There's huge advantage in that. And I, I'm not gonna unpack each of the questions that were posed, but they, they become increasingly ridiculous And they're intended to articulate the trajectory of one's thinking when you're uh, kind of stuck in the fog of religion. And it ends with a religious person making what seems to them a very rational argument and saying, well, if, if in our wrongdoing, God's glory is more visible because his grace is more evident and his salvation clearer in our lives because we've fallen so far, shouldn't we then do as much bad as we possibly could so that God could get the most glory, you know, drawing us up from such a depth? 
Paul responds with a very simple, short sentence, which is the last of our reading today. Their condemnation is just. The fog of religion ends there. That's where that sidewalk ends. That's not about relationship. That's not about heart change. You know, the, the big takeaway is really simple. Following God is a heart thing that impacts the whole of our life. It's not simply a religious thing we have in a silo of life, a Sunday silo or a morning devotion silo or whatever. This is just life. And this is not new with the coming of Jesus. Right? This has always been true for God's people. There's a fog to religion that is dangerous for the very reason it impairs our vision, just like real fog does. You get stuck in the thick stuff and you just can't see anymore. So again, the big picture, Paul is trying to make this point that every human being everywhere is in the same boat. Evil people, self-righteous people, religious people, God's people. No one is untainted by sin. The command to us is this, Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And you and I both know that if we try to do that, circumcise our hearts, make our hearts clean before God, we fail miserably. Our best efforts fall way short. We can't do it. Therefore, the promise of God fulfilled in the gospel is this, also from Deuteronomy, because God knows this about us. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. This promise that God is going to do something new He's going to do the work for us and not just make us kind of better people, but change our hearts. Give us a new birth. So that the command is to do that ourselves. We can't. The promise is that God will do that for us. And the invitation open to us right this moment and always is what Jesus said in the first words of his public ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means change your thinking. And believe means align your life. Repent and believe the good news. Let's do that together now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.